Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again this morning that we are able to gather here as your people, to hear from you. I ask, Lord, that as your word is preached, your spirit, he would be here, he would be active, he would be convicting us of sin, encouraging us, and ultimately pointing us unto Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Perhaps uh, no area in life is so full of potential. The potential for deep joys, deep pleasure, deep blessing while also having the potential for deep hurts, pain, and evil, than marriage and the family. All of you, I'm sure, who have ever been married, have felt that. The pinnacle of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is not God resting, but is rather Adam being introduced to Eve. The first problem we have in the creation account is that Adam is by himself, and God parades all the animals past him, and no one is found fit for him. And the pinnacle comes when Adam, for the first time, beholds the beauty and the wonder of a woman, of Eve, made for him, and he breaks out into poetry as he sees the, few, or the feminine beauty for the, few, for, for the first time. And the lowest point of the first three chapters of the book of Genesis is the man and the woman falling into sin in the very next chapter. we got that potential for great joy and that potential for great blessing right there in the first three chapters of the book of the Bible. And so God curses the ground, He curses the man, He curses the woman, and He even curses their relationship. You see, God is intimately interested in marriage. Marriage was His idea. Marriage ultimately, as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage is even the foundation of human society. And it is the first, or the first command God gives to mankind is to be fruitful and multiply, to go forth and subdue the earth. Marriage is at the center of that. Through this command, the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, would come. Satan, though, is also very interested in marriage. He's interested in perverting it. He's interested in redefining it. He's interested in destroying it. Such actions further his goals as he opposes God and the gospel. And we certainly live in a time where marriage is often viewed negatively, where it is perverted, where it is anything but what it should be. But marriage is viewed as a ball and chain. It's something that's going to hold you back. You won't live your best life now if you, if you get married, so you should put off marriage as long as you can because then everything will be ruined. How perverted of a view of marriage is that? Marriage holds you back. Children are a nuisance to be avoided. 
In our society, divorce rates are at a devastatingly high rate, both in the church and outside of it. We have the potential for blessings and curses in marriage. Into this context, Peter writes primarily here in chapter 3 to wives, but we should note he also writes to husbands. And this reflects what we have seen since 1 Peter chapter 1. God cares intimately about how you and I conduct ourselves. Being a Christian is meant to transform how you and I live right now until we go to be with the Lord or He comes down to this earth. And we have this, these new realities in Christ, and these new realities place tensions in our relationships, but they also must transform our relationships. Peter's literally been, been laying the groundwork for where we've been the last several weeks throughout the whole book. One of the problems with working verse by verse uh, through the Bible, and I mean more challenge than actual problem, is, is that we tend to view each section of verses how the pastor arranges it as separated from the whole. Right? Peter's working out the same argument he's had from the beginning. This is just the application point. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-16. through 16. He writes this. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as you who are called is, or who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How do you prepare your minds for action in marriage? Peter's laying that out. How do you Live sober-minded in marriage. How do you set your hope fully on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in marriage? How do you be holy as the Lord is holy in marriage? He's just working that out for us here. 1 Peter 1, 22-23 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You've been born again. Do this. Live this way. That's really what he's working out here for us. To put it plainly, if you're married, then marriage is perhaps, if not almost certainly, the most important part of your Christian walk. It's the most important part of your sanctification process. How the Lord is changing you and developing you and making you more like His Son. It doesn't matter how much theology you know, husbands, if you do not love your wife. I don't care about how much theology you know if you do not love your wife. It doesn't matter how many studies you lead or how much you volunteer, wives, if you do not respect and submit to your husband. If you are not doing these things, husbands and wives, then you are failing Discipleship 101, the most basic aspect of what it means to be a Christian. And the fact that there is such a detachment in our churches between what we know and how we live speaks volume to our problems. Theology must shape our lives. And so today we're going we're to look at four things as we unpack what Peter is getting at here. We're going to look at submission and equality, roles in marriage, looks and character, and then finally I'm going to try to make some applications and then when we're done with all of that, we'll be about 3 or 4 o'clock and it'll be dinner time <laughs> for everyone. Submission and equality. 
We're going to see this at the beginning of verse 1 and then also in verse 7. Continuing with the theme of submission, Peter first spoke to citizens submitting to the state, then slaves to their masters, and now he commands wives to be in submission to their husbands. But much like with the other passages we just covered, Peter makes it clear that this submission does not mean that the one being submitted to is greater than the one doing the submission. There is an underlying equality he puts throughout these entire three sections. Why? Because all authority in this life, all human authority in this life, finds its source in God and not man. Any authority you or I possess is not inherent to who I am. It's not a reflection of who I am, but rather it comes from God, and that means it ultimately is only to be used as how God has intended it. This hems us in from thinking too highly or too lowly of ourselves. And in that context, Peter instructs both wives and husbands. Both of them are called to live a certain way. Now, to you and me, that seems normal. We've grown up in an egalitarian culture where where we try to say men and women aren't different, which just really isn't true. But this kind of idea of instructing both wives and husbands how they're supposed to conduct themselves in marriage, it was very foreign to the Roman culture of its day. The fact that Peter and Paul elsewhere says to the men who are in authority that you must behave this way or you will be judged was countercultural. It offended people in his day. The fact that we tell women to submit to their husbands today offends women today. God was right then. He's, he's right now. Culture changes. Culture is often very wrong. But we see this gem in verse 7 when he addresses husbands. Likewise, hus- likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Think of that last clause there. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter wants men and women to know that they are joint heirs to the eternal life found in Jesus Christ. That they are equals. So husbands, why should you treat your wife this way? Because they're equal with you in Christ. This echoes what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. There are neither slave nor free, male nor female in Christ. It doesn't mean male and female just disappear. But that who you are makes no difference to being saved in Christ. Your sex has no bearing on your salvation. And so husbands are commanded to view their wives as their equals. For they too will inherit the same thing in the same way. And so we, again, we are struck with Peter being subversive with an underlying equality. Make no mistake, the fact that Christianity was in the first century regarded and derided as a religion for slaves and women. We have the audacity today to say that Christianity was oppressive to women and held them back. Anybody who says that has never studied history and knows nothing and is trying to sell you something. The first century church was marked as a religion of slaves and and women. And Christianity laid the found foundation for granting things like women's rights. Because both men and women bear the image of God and both are being redeemed by grace through Jesus Christ. And by giving commands to both husbands and to their wives, Peter establishes that both are equally accountable before God for how they act. Now, the commands are different, but God says, hey men, you are to act this way. Hey women, you are to act this way, and I'm going to judge you both. 
So therefore, pay attention. And it's much like when we spoke about submission to the state and slaves to their masters, this underlying equality is found as the women are called to do this as they hope in God. It's just another way of saying, do this as unto the Lord or for the Lord's sake. Ultimately, this is about serving God, not your husband. The authority they are really submitting to is a divine authority, not their husband. In fact, we should note this, that women are not here nor anywhere else in the Bible commanded to submit to all men. They're commanded to submit to one, their husband. Wives, therefore, or women, therefore, choose Choose your husband very carefully. But when you are married, you are called to submit to him. And while there is this inherent equality of worth, dignity, and standing before God, there are differences as we move into roles here, roles between men and women. It has been the denial of this that has led to what we would call today the uh, transgender movement. We have first denied that there was a difference in roles or generally how men and women live that has led us to the absurdity today that there are neither male nor female. Early feminism began with the laudable goal of equal rights under the law. You'll find no argument from me from the pulpit on that. But then it shifted in the second wave of the sexual revolution that men and women are in essence the exact same in how they live and what they can accomplish. You can think of the old song, anything you can do, I can do better. Right? That's nonsense. There are things that women are better at than men, and there are things that men are generally better at than women. And the fact that we've forgotten this is why we're having so much trouble with female sports right now in the transgender movement. It's not true. Anything you can do, I cannot necessarily do better. The sooner we come to terms with that, the better. But in that second wave of the sexual revolution, you saw the feminists of that day go butch. And they started to do everything that a man could do. They said there's, there's no functional difference between men and women. And so gender roles were frowned upon and they were looked on as a societal construct that kept women down. And now we're at the point where the whole category of gender roles, of male and female, as that foundation, is considered a social construct. Why? Well, for years we were arguing there was no functional difference between men and women, and now we're starting to live like there is no functional difference between men and women. So much so that now some feminists are backtracking, they're rethinking this, and they're saying there is such a thing as a unique feminine experience. I agree with them on that, because they know if there isn't, then there's no such thing as a woman at all. If there is no such thing as what women generally do, then there is no such thing as women. Think about this for a moment. This is the catch-22, uh, catch the trap of the transgender movement right now. The whole idea of gender. They say this. On the one hand, they say that gender is not biological. It's not biological. It's a social construct. But if it's not biological... Why do they insist on futilely trying to change a, a person's biology through chemicals or surgery? It's not biological, okay? Well, then you don't need to do any of these things to yourself, right? Especially not the young children. But they do it because they know it's inescapably biological. But also, if gender is not biological, 
and it is therefore so-called cultural, then what you're doing is really just saying that the ways men act and the way women act or the certain roles that men and women do are at the essence of what it means to be a man or a woman. And what you've just done is backtracked to the oppressive patriarchal day of the 1950s where women should be stuck in the kitchen all day, every day. Because that's what it means to be a woman. It's what you do. It's not your parts. It's, it's what you do. And so the transgender movement is stuck between these, these two poles. Either it's biological, and then it can't be changed, or it's all about what you do, and then you get these sick caricatures of people who think they know what it means to be a woman and who then pretend to be one. This is our confused age. So what are the roles Peterless here? What does it mean to be a good wife or a good husband? First, we should note that the wife is commanded to submit to her husband. And you should also note that this is written in such a way as an eye towards a Christian woman who is married to an unbelieving husband. That's at the heart of what Peter is getting at here. How does her new status as a Christ follower, as someone who is equal with males who believe in Christ, one who is now being transformed into one who is being um, seated at the right hand of the Father, how does she submit to her husband who doesn't even know Christ? This is the underlying assumption here. That the relationship of marriage does not change simply because Christ has come. And the assumption is that the wife's desire here is for her husband to be converted. So Peter's writing to women whose husbands are not believers, but they are in the church, and they want their husbands to become Christians. They want their husbands to change. Wives never want their husbands to change. You see, in the Roman world, the whole family would generally worship whatever God the Father did. So whatever God, the, the head of the household, worshipped, everyone in that household would then worship. He would set the religious direction of his home and his family and of his wife. And the fact that Peter here addresses the wife as a Christian and the husband as not is being subversive. Right? In some families, that would not be allowed. He does not tell her to reject her faith, but rather to submit to her husband in just about everything else. So how can a believing wife encourage her husband to become a believer? Or let me phrase it here for believing marriage is husband and wife. How can a believing wife encourage her believing husband to grow in holiness? How do you do that? Is it through the right argument? Is it through nagging? Is it through giving him the cold shoulder? Is it through withholding or withdrawing? yourself until he does what you want? Is it by manipulating him? No. As a pastor, I've seen this. Women married to unbelievers, and they have the right desire. They want to see the one they love to become a Christian, and they try all kinds of tactics to try to guilt him into coming to church. And you point out First Peter 3, it generally doesn't, just goes right over their head. They're like, no, no, no. It's really important that they come to church. Yes, it is. But guilting him is not going to change anything. And while the desire is not wrong, their, their methods often are. The best witness, a believing wife, or even a believing husband for that matter, is to be a godly spouse. It is not to try to control them, to manipulate them, or to change them. Yes, you will get some initial concessions, but you cannot convert anyone. 
And so Peter commands wives to submit to their husbands, even if he is an unbeliever, for this is inherent to the husband and wife relationship from creation until Christ returns. What does this submission mean? Well, first, it means to submit to his role as husband and as the head of the family. It is not here nor anywhere else a command for the wives to be absolutely silent before their husband, to never give their input or to never give counsel. And in fact, if there is a husband out there who does not actively seek his wife's counsel, he is a fool and he needs to think again. But he is ultimately the head of the family and she must respect and honor that reality. And so this submission means actually submitting to her husband, even and especially when you don't agree or don't understand why your husband made that decision. Let me rephrase that. Sometimes in churches we water down submission so much that it's like, well, if it makes sense to me, then I'll submit. That's not submission. If your kids acted that way. Well, Dad, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't agree with you, so I'm not going to submit. Oh, okay. That's fine. If you only submit when it makes perfect sense to you or when it's easy or when you agree, then it's not really submission. Or if your submission is only done with a begrudging heart and you'll make him pay for it later in other areas, it also is not true submission. We are to, or sorry, sorry, women are to. It's not we. I'm not a woman. We are told to model this off of Sarah calling Abraham Lord. Submission, though, is also not a license for the husband to be a dictator in his own home. All authority is delegated by God and you will be judged for the authority given to you and how you use it. It is not to be lorded over your wife, and it is not a means of putting her in her place, but it is there for you to seek the best of your family and the best for your wife. Husbands, if your default position is to issue commands and to telling your wife the Bible says you must submit, you're doing it wrong. That's not the recipe for a successful marriage. So what is the role then? Wives, the primary role is to submit and follow the lead of your husband. What is the primary role of the husband? Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. You are here commanded to protect and to honor your wife because she is the weaker vessel. Weaker here does not mean weaker intellectually. does not mean weaker emotionally. It's literally referring to the physical strength of men over women. Men are generally stronger than women. Again, hence our problems with transgenderism in sports today. These are things that your grandma knew better than a PhD in gender studies knows today. Men and women are different. Men are generally stronger than women. And Peter instructs husbands to honor their wives. Now to us that sounds just like a passing comment. But honor was of the utmost importance in Roman culture. It was the thing that the rich and the powerful pursued. Cicero was the famous orator or speech giver of Rome. He said this. He said, By nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed it, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and to suffer in order to secure it. Cicero says, honor is the one thing we want and we'll suffer anything in order to get honor. And so when Peter commands, earlier up in the other sections, to honor everyone just as you honor the emperor, he is being as subversive as you can be. 
Right? The emperor gets all the honor. The slave doesn't get honor. What, what are you talking about? And when he commands husbands here to honor their wives, he's asking to, or he's commanding husbands to give their wives the greatest blessing in that culture that he could give to her. It was the coveted thing. Joseph Kellerman, again, writes on Greco-Roman culture. He said this, Honor, not money, and certainly not love, was the most prized social commodity in the Roman world during the New Testament era. Beyond the necessities of life, persons in antiquity did everything possible to defend and augment their honor in the public sphere. Conversely, they did everything in their power to avoid shame and the shame of public dishonor. Roman life was literally a rat race to get as much honor as you could possibly get. And into that context, Peter says, Husbands, honor your wives. She is weaker, but like that fragile, beautiful sculpture or vase in the museum, she is to be honored and treated and protected as a valuable, worthwhile individual. And so husbands, this means quite plainly, your wife is not to be treated just like one of the guys. Because she's not. In your words, and your actions, you are to love her, you are to shower her with the honor due her position as your wife. And you are commanded then to live with her in an understanding way. And as impossible as that sounds, I asked my wife once, women are hard to understand. And she goes, yeah, I, I don't understand them either. As impossible as it appears, you are to study your wife and you are to come to understand what makes her tick. And you get a whole lifetime to do that. You get to unravel that wonderful mystery that God has picked to be your spouse. And you are then to live with her in an understanding way and to show her the honor due a daughter of Eve who is being redeemed in Christ. Peter then moves on to a discussion of how women should adorn themselves. If we're not careful here, we could fall into some very grave misunderstandings that Christianity often falls into that we would say are more fundamentalist in nature. What we have here is Peter laying out two competing, or at least appear to be competing, views or forms of beauty. External beauty and internal beauty. And we should know at the offset here that, that these are not mutually exclusive. They can and do coexist. The ideal here is that they both should be together and then the beauty is magnified. We should also note that neither internal or external beauty is an evil thing. What Peter gets at here is that women have a tendency to overvalue external beauty over internal beauty. And in response to this, Christians sometimes overcorrect, overcorrect and think that holiness for a woman equals being frumpy. That's not the case. This is, this is to, to act that way is to reject something that God has made good and to reject his inherent design. So listen carefully to what Peter commands in verses 3 through 5. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning, adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle in quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves 
by submitting to their own husbands. Is Peter here forbidding jewelry, the braiding of hair, and clothing? No. You should note, listed together is braiding hair, putting on gold jewelry, and not just nice clothing, but clothing at all. So if he's forbidding braiding of hair and jewelry, he would be forbidding women to wear clothing. That's not what he's doing. Not even in the slightest. What he's getting at here is that women, again, as I said, sometimes focus on the external over the internal when it comes to beauty. So the problem is not that women can be physically attractive. The problem is not that they can dress nice. The problem is when they overvalue that against internal beauty. You see, all beauty originates with God. And in the new creation, all of the beauty you had at your most beautiful day will be that by the pale shadow of how beautiful you will be when Christ returns. The new creation will be more beautiful than now. God doesn't hate beauty, neither should you. But there are proper contexts and uses for jewelry, braiding, and nice clothes, and even physical beauty. Consider for a moment the book, of the, the book, The Song of Solomon. Most of the book is spent describing, in figurative language, the goodness and the beauty of the male and female body in a marriage relationship. Now, it makes you a little awkward and uncomfortable. That book was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was written by God. He's not ashamed of it. But he says this in the first chapter. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women... I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of pearls. We will make you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So here's Solomon. He exalts the beauty of his wife. He notes the jewelry she's wearing enhances her beauty. And then the women chime in and they say, we're going to make her more jewelry. And this is all inspired by God. So no, the Bible does not say women can't braid their hair and shouldn't wear jewelry. Anybody interpreting that way isn't reading the whole Bible, and they, well, they should go back and read the whole Bible. So what is Peter getting at? That we can make physical appearance an idol, and that women in particular may value their physical beauty over their inner beauty. But both of those beauties are good. But inner beauty in this life lasts longer. Inner beauty also complements and enhances outward beauty. I'm sure every single one of us can think of a good-looking person who we knew or who we met, and as soon as he or she opened their mouth, they became instantly unattractive. Your inner beauty will either make you more beautiful or less. Or as Solomon put it in Proverbs 11:22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. I know there's still a gold ring there. There's still something there of value. That's the beauty, but it's outweighed by the location. It's in the, the nose of a pig, an unclean animal. It shouldn't be that way. Physical beauty should be complemented by inner beauty. Beauty's not the problem. Idolizing it is. And so what is Peter driving at? The idea of adorning is used to speak of clothing and whatnot on the outside and the adorning on the inside. We should understand this as the idea of your identity. Where does your primary identity come from as a woman? Is it to be pretty or is it to be godly? Again, nothing wrong with being pretty. But if that's more important to you than following Christ, then, then we have a problem. 
This is the, the problem the church often runs into. Is we want things simple, we want things clear cut, and so we want to locate the sin in the object instead of the human heart. So we want to say, braids are unchristian, jewelry is unchristian. No, those are gifts from God. And then we start talking about things like purity culture, and purity culture is good. We, we want to be pure in our sexual ethic. But we've had a tendency, especially in my generation and before, that we've come to even talk about it in such a way that young women grow up in the church and think that the problem is actually their own beauty and their own body. That's not a Christian view. That's not the problem. That's the gift. The problem is, is we pervert those things, we use them in the wrong way, and we idolize them. We, we must understand that. And so this, in this context, in 1 Peter, it is magnified in two ways. Why is he addressing dress and jewelry and gold of women in this specific context? Well, think back to the Roman rat race of honor and standing in culture. Clothing in the Roman culture conveyed where you were in society. Many of you know about the Roman toga. Not everyone in Rome and Greece wore togas. Those were reserved only for citizens of Rome. And in fact, if you were not a citizen of Rome and you were caught wearing a toga, you could be executed for that. So clothing in the Roman culture conveyed who you were, what your status was in life. And in addition to the toga, there was hairstyle and jewelry added to that to say where in the rank of Roman society were you. So in 1 Peter 3, the context here, the argument is, I think, rather clear, is that you are not, as a woman, to try to elevate your status that you feel like you're losing and submitting to your husband by how you dress. I think there's actually a second point he's getting at here. And uh, I looked and I looked, and no New Testament commentators I could find agreed with me on this. So take it with a grain of salt, but I'm pretty convinced that I'm right and they're wrong. I think this is clearly directed at women in relationship to their husbands. So you have women talking to their, to their husbands um, who are unbelievers, who are trying to find a way to convince them. Then he talks about, so he submit to them, and he says, don't dress this way, but rather submit to them. So this is not primarily about women being modest in how they dress. It's about how wives are relating to their husbands and seeking to get an advantage over them. And so the, I think what Paul or Peter is getting at here is that some women thought that maybe through their physical appearance and their beauty, she could get what she wanted from her husband. Women would never do that, right? And Peter says, don't do that. That's not how it's going to work. That's not how they're going to be converted. I think that makes the most sense of Peter's argument here. And so what's the application that we can make for today? Well, the application is not be frumpy. The application is not neglect your physical appearance. There's nothing wrong with looking nice. There's nothing wrong with stewarding the, be the beauty God has given you. But there is something wrong with obsessing over it. The application is character is more important than looks. Character lasts longer. And now we're, we're getting really short on time. So we have one more point to consider. The blessings and the curses of marriage. Your marriage is a testimony to what you actually believe. Discipleship 101. And so a Christian marriage should have a sweet aroma of life. It should be attractive. It should be life-giving. If you look for perfection in your, or from your spouse in your marriage, you will only serve to undermine it. You're both sinners. But Peter commands wives not to worry about their husband's actions primarily, 
but their own. Let me say that again. Peter commands wives to not worry about what their husbands are doing, but to control their own actions. And husbands, he says the same thing to you. Don't worry about what your husband or your wife is doing primarily, but control yourself. These are the blessings Peter lays out for wives of mixed marriages. That their best chance to win their husband to the faith is through their good conduct. Not nagging, not manipulation, and not their physical appearance. That they, the application we can make then is that if you're married to a Christian man and he's having some struggle in his life, what's the best way that you can encourage him to grow? Not by constantly pointing it out, not by undermining him, not by manipulating him, but by being the best wife you can be. By offering grace. By being more like Christ. Control what you can control. Don't try to control the sanctification of your spouse. Work on your own sanctification. And here's the curse. A warning specifically given to husbands in verse 7. Peter says, Live with your wife in an understanding way, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The Holy Spirit issues a warning here to husbands. If you won't live with your wife in an understanding way, God will not hear your prayers. That's about as big a threat as you can get. Again, we're not looking for perfection here. But the warning is stark. And I think this can be applied to both spouses. If you're a self-righteous husband or you're a self-righteous wife, don't expect God to hear your prayers. He won't. And he does that for your good. So now if you're like me, you're at this point, you're thinking, man, Levi, I really need to do better in my marriage. What hope is there for us? Well, the hope is this. Everything Peter's talked about before chapter 3. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're being transformed into the image of your Savior. Christ is your perfection. You don't need to be perfect. Your spouse doesn't need to be perfect. But you do need to be pursuing Christ. And so if you feel convicted this morning, confess your sins, throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ. His blood is enough. His spirit is strong enough to transform your marriage and get up and follow your Savior. For marriage is discipleship 101 for the Christian. You are called, both husbands and wives, to show the love of Christ to one another. To lay down your life for your spouse and for your children. And your marriage is not, as the world tells you, primarily about you finding the best you. It's about you coming and dying for the good of others. And when you find a husband and a wife limping along, doing both, or both doing that thing, you find a Christ-centered marriage that has the aroma of life. When both, when both husband and wife are striving after that, it is the greatest blessing that you will find until Christ returns. It is beautiful, it gives life, and Christ's gospel is displayed in word and in deed. And that is the hope of his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We ask now for your grace to live it out. I pray for every family represented here, every husband and wife, and everyone here who is not yet married, but maybe one day, that you would help us to make our marriages about Christ. Not about seeking the self, not about getting whatever we can out of the relationship, but about laying our lives down for others. 
We ask, Lord, that you would protect and bless the marriages of Christ Bible Church, that they would reflect the glory of your gospel, and that we would, by your grace, love one another, show grace to one another, and therefore be transformed. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.